You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. Please use discretion. One of the things that makes me laugh all the time, and this tells you how old I am, um, we used to, back in Dallas, there was a street called Force Lane, and you would drive up and down Force Lane, and that's when you met boys. Now, can you imagine that today? <laughs> Oh, would you stick your head out the window? <laughs> I know. Does it sound ridiculous now? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure people are rolling their eyes. Sheila Wysocki was a student at Southern Methodist University, SMU, in the 80s. Sometimes for fun, she and her friend Angela Samoda would drive around Dallas. She had the coolest car. It was a Toyota Supra. And of course, she was adorable. And so um, it was great fun being with her because um, we would meet a lot of people. And so we would go um, up and down Forest Lane. How did you meet Angela Samoda? I was just put with her as my freshman roommate. Uh, I, rem- I remember my freshman roommate... Um... How was yours? I mean, did you did you <laughs> well, did you and Angela know this was totally the right match right away? It was not the right match right away. So um, I had to get used to her, and she had to get used to me. And when Angie and I, I call her Angie, um, when she and I were put together, um, she came from a very wealthy family. I obviously didn't. Um, so we we came from a different background. Angie had a boyfriend who was always hanging around. Sheila couldn't stand him. She thought he was controlling. And so things got off to a pretty rocky start between the roommates. But then, after the holidays, Angie broke up with the boyfriend. We just started hanging out. And, you know, it's back in the era of disco. That was the greatest thing, going out and dancing and um that was fun. And then we used to go to a place called the Rio Room. And the Rio Room was a private club that you had to have a membership. And Angie was very friendly with the, gosh, I guess they're called bouncers now. But he would always let us in. And we'd hang out and dance. And um, she drank. I didn't. I still don't. And so I was the designated driver. By the end of their first year... They did everything together. I think back to 
those days, and it was such a short period of my life, but it changed it completely. At the beginning of their sophomore year, in the fall of 1984, Angie decided to join a sorority. But instead of moving into a sorority house, she got a condo off campus. She'd begun dating an older guy. His name was Ben, and she wanted to be able to see him whenever she wanted. Sheila kept living in the dorm, and on the second weekend of October 1984, she was home visiting her mother in North Texas. So I was home, just got in from a haircut, and of course back then we didn't have cell phones, and the phone was ringing, so I ran in, went into my bedroom, picked up the phone, and on the other line was a sorority sister of Angie's and a friend of mine who was crying. Her words were, there's been an accident. And I immediately thought Angie had a car accident. And I said to her, where is she? What hospital is she? And my friend kept crying. So I knew, you know, obviously I knew something was wrong because the next question I asked was, is she dead? And... My friend was crying harder, so I knew that she was dead. And one of the things that um, Barbara said is that the police needed to talk to me. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Tell me about the weekend uh, in October. Um, of 1984. That was Texas-Oklahoma weekend. And what that means is um, the football season, they have a big, in Dallas, they have this big football game every year. It's a huge deal in Texas. And all the people from Oklahoma come in and all the people from University of Texas come in. So it's a busy weekend. And um, Angie decided to go out that night and invited um, one of her friends from class and a guy named Russell. And Russell was, he was older than we were. He was more established. He was an architect. He was a very soft-spoken guy. So um, they decided to go to the Rio room. They stayed out late. And then Angie took everyone home. First, she drove Russell to his apartment. Next, she dropped off her friend at the dorm. And then she drove over to her boyfriend Ben's house. Now, Ben was supervisor of a construction company. So he was older. And when I say older, I only mean like two or three years. It's not like 50, you know, year old with a 20-year-old. So he was probably 28 at that time, and he was in charge of a a construction um, site. And so he didn't go out that night with her because the, um, you know, he had an early morning at the construction site. So Angie went by his house. It was about, I would say, 30 minutes from her apartment. And her personality was really kind of funny and teasing. And so Ben opened the door and she was kind of teasing him about having to stay in. And they only talked for a few minutes. 
she left. He went back to bed. She left. And then when she came to her apartment, she goes upstairs, and then there was a knock at the door. And so she opened the door, and um, there was a guy at the door who um, said he needed to use the restroom and um, the phone. Angie was smart enough to go to her telephone and dial Ben. And when she dialed Ben, he answered the phone. He's groggy, and he wasn't really following. I, I believe she was giving him clues, saying certain things. And finally, he goes, I hear a voice. Who is that? And she said, some strange man. Well, the phone call between Angie and Ben was cut off. It 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 was cut off. Ben, because the phone, because it ended, you know, and he didn't know what was happening, he got into his truck. And back then, we did not have cell phones. However, he had a cell phone because the construction site, his, literally, that phone was as big as a dashboard. And so he kept dialing the number over and over, and of course she never answered. On October 13, 1984, police found 20-year-old Angie Samoda dead in her bedroom. She'd been fatally stabbed and sexually assaulted. Officers interviewed SMU students who'd been close to Angie, trying to piece together the events of that night, and also to try to get a sense of her life in general. Students were terrified. They didn't have a suspect, and that's when the rumor started. It could be this person or that person, and all these guys were under suspicion, and you wonder, is it somebody I know? Is it somebody I've been with? Is it somebody that, you know, is a friend of Angie's and mine, and who could it be? And that gives you a lot of anxiety. How did you feel about her boyfriend, Ben? I liked him. He was good for her. Her first boyfriend, when we were freshmen, couldn't stand him. He probably is not a fan of mine, um, but, yeah, I couldn't stand him. Ben was respectful, um, kind, funny. So when his name came up as a suspect, I was pretty surprised. But there's part of you that wonders, well, could it be? You went to the police station. Oh, yeah. How did I did. That, for being, looking back and being 21 years old and going into that environment, I never dealt with the police before. Um, it was, it's, it was a really gross um, place to me. And I remember going to meet the detective in charge and to this day gosh i still remember the pictures on his desk those pictures were of the crime scene i understand that was just an everyday event for the police but they were there and there's this one picture that still haunts me uh, they showed it in the trial, too, and it's Angie on the bed with her eyes open, and there's blood everywhere. 
And it was just a picture on the desk to somebody. What did you think had happened to her? I mean, when you were, what did you think about? I certainly had an opinion. I thought the freshman boyfriend killed her. He had pulled a knife on her prior to this. He had shredded her clothes. I was 100% convinced that he killed her. Did the cops suspect the first boyfriend? Um, They did an investigation on him. So there were four guys that were primary suspects. He was one, but his alibi, uh, he was in Amarillo. His alibi evidently checked out. Um, And, of course, Ben was a suspect. Then Russell Buchanan, who had um, been with Angie that night dancing, and a fourth guy, um, he had a crush on Angie, and he'd leave her notes on her car, and she was so nice. Now, you have to understand, she was in the engineering and computer science classes, and you didn't have a lot of girls back then in in that field. And so she was beautiful. She was nice. And these guys loved her. I mean, she was such a nice girl. So she would get flowers and notes and things. And he was a suspect just because he left her some love notes. How did you first get involved helping the police? I think because I knew everybody. I knew all the players. And You know, I could ask questions and talk to people. And um, I remember when it really started was I was on the phone with the detective and I said, I just have an uneasy feeling when I talk to this person. And he goes, well, let's explore that. So we did. And I would meet the uh, lead detective at bars, which is hilarious since I don't drink. But I don't know if he's you know, said, I need your help, because I don't really think they needed it. Well, they did need it. I think that he just used me as a resource. So how it worked is um, he'd have me ask questions. So I would go to dinner with Russell, asked him questions about, you know, that night, and compare it to what he told the police. Now, the police were convinced that Russell did it. And I was told that, you know, his semen matched his, he failed the lie detector test. They believe they have their guy. And when I had dinner with him at August Moon, thinking I'm sitting with a murderer, um, his story matched what he said before. But let me just, wait a second, you're 21 and you're sitting, I mean, I would be terrified to have dinner with this guy. I would say my mother has never been, was never madder than that moment. And I just thought, somebody's got to do it. Did the police tell you what to ask? Yes. I'm not smart. I was definitely not smart enough to know what to ask. Um, And so I asked what they wanted to know. I mean, were you, uh, I would just be thinking, this guy's going to come after me if he figures out that I'm snooping around here. We went to a public area 
Um, the only mistake I made is he drove. That was probably not the wisest thing, thinking back. But, yeah, I the whole time uh, I didn't eat. I sort of ate. And just watching him, everything that he was doing is body language if he's a bad guy. And, you know, I'm, I really thought he was the murderer. I'm so confused that the Dallas police, did they send a car behind? No. <laughs> so it's just you. I mean, it's in the 80s. Well, but it's not 1880. You know what I mean? Mm. Isn't that... I never questioned. I had such a high regard for the police that I would never question anything they asked or did. The police questioned Russell repeatedly, but they never charged him. They just didn't have enough. Eventually, the investigation seemed to fizzle out, and then Russell started graduate school in London. So, you know, I'm being told he fled the country. I also was told that he lawyered up. And in Texas, back in the 80s, the uh, famous attorney was Racehorse Haynes. They told me that he has Racehorse Haynes as the attorney, which meant he was guilty. You only get Racehorse Haynes if you're guilty, evidently. Why did they stop investigating? I have no idea. Well, actually, I do. I think they felt like Russell did it, and they were going to go after him. And if he didn't do something, um, they didn't have a case. Sheila ended up leaving school. She just couldn't handle being on campus. She stayed close with her friends and with Angie's sorority sisters. And she'd meet up with Ben from time to time. And then she started dating the man who had become her husband. My husband um, fit into the group. He was, he's a solid, grounded guy. He's an accountant, so um, probably boring to a lot of people, but everything to me. They got married. They moved to Tennessee and had two boys. And Sheila decided she wanted to stay home to raise them. When the boys got old enough to both be in school during the day, she suddenly had a lot of time to herself. So I decided in the South, what do you do when you have extra time? You start, you go to a Bible study, and that's what I did. I went to a Beth Moore Bible study at a church with some friends of mine, and we were studying Daniel. So I was at, in my bed <laughs> um, trying to get through the— homework. And I was laying back. Oh, gosh. I was laying back, and I looked to the right. And understand when I was laying back, it could be and been the, you know, dream state, or it could have been whatever. I just know what I saw. I saw Angie next to my bed, and that was it. It was probably a second, or it could have been five seconds, but it was a moment, and it was gone. And I leaned over, picked up the phone, because I knew it. I knew she wanted me to call the Dallas police, and I did. I knew it was time. I knew it was time, and it was.
Support for Criminal comes from Astapro, who also provided us with free samples. This is my favorite time of year, even though I've had terrible allergies all my life. My mother says she always knew when I was up in the morning because she'd hear me sneeze and say, Phoebe's up. I think the most I've ever sneezed in a row is 48. It's like my nose is in control and I'm just along for the ride. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. It starts working in just 30 minutes, so you can get on with your day and be out in the sun comfortably. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Support for Criminal comes from Factor. After a long day at work, sometimes the most convenient dinner option is ordering takeout. But if you make a habit of it, it can get pricey. Factor offers restaurant-quality, ready-to-eat meals delivered right to your doorstep. Factor's meals are both nutritious and tasty, and you can choose from more than 35 different options weekly. They have a variety of meal types to fit your needs, too, like keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, with plenty of delicious add-ons also. I've tried Factor meals myself. Lately, I've enjoyed their shredded chicken taco bowl and Thai-roasted vegetable green curry. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. You can also pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 and use code Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code Phoebe50 at factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 20 years had passed since Angie's murder, and Sheila decided she wanted some answers. What did you say to the Dallas police? When I started calling, they did not have a cold case division at all. And they were working the current cases. They had no desire to talk to me at all. And I was like, I'm just going to keep calling until I get somebody who will at least do something, pull the record, look at it. So, yes, I had the personnel. I have the personality of I'm going to keep trying. So how often, how frequently would you call the Dallas police? You know, I know um, how often over a period of time it wasn't it was like 700 and maybe 750, 800 phone calls. It wasn't, you know, it was over a year's period of time. So it wasn't every single day. It's just whenever I felt like it. Now we had cell phones. It was really easy to pick up the kids and get on the phone. And when you would call, would you say, hey, wait a second, you guys dropped the ball. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? No, I would never say that. Um, no, I I think it was more of a begging. I, I just wanted someone to do something right for her. I was told that not one person had called in 20 years. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, she deserved better than that. 
She kept trying, over and over, and getting nowhere. Years later, one of the homicide detectives told her they'd given her a nickname. He said, we call you PETA, pain in the ass. And he said, probably every time you called, they would say, who wants to take this PETA, you know? And I'm sure it's true. I'm sure it was kind of, who are we going to get to talk to her today? And one day, I had a cookie exchange at my house, and then we went to the club afterwards, and I got a call back from this police officer from the Dallas Police Department. I can't tell you how exciting that was to me because that guy was a rookie, which is hilarious. And he said that, oh, no, they do have some things from that file. And he, I asked him a bunch of questions, got the answers, and it was one of those great moments. I knew they had it. I asked him one thing. He goes, oh, I have to ask my sergeant. Hang on. And I was like, no, don't go ask anybody. Just don't even worry about it, you know. And he goes, oh, I'll call you back. Never heard from him again. And when I was blown off numerous times, I lived at that point in a gated, guarded community. That's one of the byproducts of Angie's death. I like living in a gated, guarded community. And I was telling the head of security how the—it became a joke between us of, you know, how the police were blowing me off. And one day he said, you know, I'll sponsor you if you want to become a private investigator. You'd be great. And that's how it started. And I did. And he mentored me for a long time. Because you thought that if you were a private investigator, the cops, the police would have to show you all the records. I got my PI license in order for them to have to deal with me. I mean, how does someone become a private investigator? Back then, it wasn't like it is today. Um, You had to, you know, work under somebody. You had to be sponsored by somebody. You had to take a test, which I acted like it was a Harvard entrance exam. And one of the things my oldest son did was he would read me all the laws so I could memorize them and take the test. Uh, we would sit on the couch at night, and he would read it to me. And my youngest, to this day, still remembers it um, and asked me questions. And so I took it and passed the test and started working with these guys, um, the security guys. So I learned things that weren't necessarily what I wanted to do, like the cheating spouse thing and the, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff. And in the background the whole time, were you thinking about Angie's case? That's the only case I cared about. So what did you do on your own to start investigating? So I went back to the beginning of what we remember and what I remembered. My son called it a war room. It wasn't a war room. It was pictures and, you know, where people were. And it was it was very messy. And, you know, I mean, is this what we see on TV? These pictures of people with little pieces of string drawn from here to the <laughs> pinpoints in a map? And um, well, yes, but no, I didn't have the string. But I did go back to 
the rate, because we had the internet, which is the greatest gift, um, I did go back to figure out the rapes in the area and how many were reported and if there was a pattern. Were you also now calling the Dallas police and saying, listen, I'm a private investigator. I need uh, some information. So, yes, I called them and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's the heavens are going to open and they're going to be so excited. Oh, my gosh, they so weren't. By now, she'd been pressuring the Dallas police for five years. And then Sheila finally got a detective to take her seriously and dig up the evidence from Angie's case. The detective's name was Linda Crum. And when she called me and we had our first conversation, I knew she was the right person, and she was. So she told me not only did they have the file and the evidence, they had the semen, they had the uh, fingernail scrapings, they had it all, every frigging bit of it. Sheila asked about DNA testing, something they couldn't have done 20 years before. You know, the OJ case had happened um, when my youngest was born. I remember actually nursing him, listening to what this thing called DNA was and trying to figure it out, thinking, oh, I can use this in our case. We've just got to, you know, I had no idea what DNA was back then. And so with the semen, I knew we had DNA. And it took about a year to get the DNA back. And what did the DNA show? Well, I'll tell you, that phone call came in, and she said, she said they got him. And the next words I was thinking was going to be Russell Buchanan, because that's who I, all these years, had had bad feelings towards. He was the bad guy, and it wasn't him. She said, Donald Bess. And I'm like, who the heck is Donald Bass? I had no idea. And I'm going through my mind going, Donald Bass, was he in a fraternity? Was he on our, you know, sister floor? Who is he? Could not place him for anything. I'll tell you, I didn't believe him. (laughs) I was like, they screwed up. My initial reaction was, oh my gosh, something's wrong here. They must have messed up the DNA. And... I start asking the detective, you know, how she knew it was him, and the match was like one to one billion that it was him. I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, I did call the DA's office and talk to the assistant DA to ask him, are you sure that's the guy? Are you sure that was the right evidence? Because all these years I was told the evidence was you know, not there. Are you sure you got the right guy? Donald Bess was a convicted rapist who was out on parole in 1984 when he attacked Angie. By the time Sheila and Detective Crum figured out it was him, he'd been convicted of another attack and was serving life in prison. He would not talk to the female investigator because he, quote, thinks all women are bitches. And so he did talk to the male um, investigator. And one of the things that I thought was so ironic, you have a female investigator, you have this great female woman who did the autopsy, and myself. 
and these women did it. Sheila and her oldest son drove 650 miles from Nashville to Dallas for the trial. And um, I remember getting there. He's, my son's sitting next to me. And Donald Bess walks into the room. Donald Bess was this beast of a human being. And I remember it was like the oxygen in the entire room was sucked out. He um, sits down, and I could not breathe. Angie's family and friends were all in the courtroom. The lawyers defending Donald Bess insinuated that Angie was somehow responsible for what had happened to her. And they trashed Angie's character and reputation. It was disgusting to me. She was a tease. She was this. She was that. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, they brought in what she was wearing that night. And it's it was a beautiful outfit. Um, but it was revealing. I mean, it, back in those days, standard is probably something you can wear every day now. But, you know, from the 80s, it was pretty revealing. It, it was her fault, basically. The jury deliberated for less than an hour. Donald Bess was convicted and sentenced to death. Why did you think that you could do this? Become a private investigator? Solve the case? I didn't. But I had to try. She deserved it. You now have your own firm. What's it called? Without warning, private investigation. And how many cases have you done? I was retiring my license after Angie's case because i that's the only case I cared about. And I was approached numerous times from these families who are going through the same thing. And I thought, oh, I'll just help this family. And then it started to grow from there. And as we're speaking right now, I'll have a call sometime this week from another family. I get hundreds, sometimes thousands of people contacting me. So I started working one-by-one cases. I don't have 400 cases. I take—I used to take one a year. I have five right now. And you only do cold cases? I only do cold cases. Murder cases? Yes. I'm thinking about these women in your Bible study group. Um, what do they have to say about your new career? <laughs> um, okay, so I'm not really invited to a lot of the foo-foo girl things because I don't have a lot. <laughs> I don't have a lot in common with that anymore. Um, I don't even do my cookie exchange anymore. She's currently investigating a case from 2015. A woman's body was found by fishermen in a cove in Tennessee. It was labeled an accident. But Sheila doesn't think it was. In our next episode, we'll go to Nashville to shadow Sheila as she investigates the case.
was produced by Lauren Spohr, Nadia Wilson, and me. Audio mixed by Rob Byers. Matilde Urfelino is our intern. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. Shows like Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. The Theory of Everything is a podcast where you never really know what's fake and what's real. That's because The Theory of Everything features both documentary and fiction. And he's just launched a new season. It's called False Alarm. The phone goes, And I grabbed my phone and see my entire life flash before my eyes. I was amazed with myself that I could believe that it was real. So, for the record, you like this guy. You like our president. Listen, I can relate to him because, you know, as a stripper, you know, you come into the world of fantasy and I'm like, oh, yes, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you that. And then you give me money and I run away. <laughs> and then the alarm started going off on the television, the, like the buzzer. This is not a drill. Take immediate action measures. Go listen. Special thanks to AdZerk for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radiotopia.